The only thing that changes behavior is, and this is the drag, changing behavior. Yes, yes. So, so the point is, once you see that your kid can walk to school and they come home and they're excited and they're happy and they're flushed and they brought you a clutch of dandelions because they were so grateful that you finally let them and here it is, it's for you, mommy, it's a bouquet. Your heart bursts with joy because your kid is happy and because they're safe and mostly because you as a parent have succeeded because why are we, why do you have kids? The, the reason we have kids, but for evolution reasons is that so that we, they carry on our genes. And what you need to know is that your child is going to survive when you're dead. That is the most basic part of parenting. When you get down to the very, to the grit level. And when you are with your kid doing everything with them all the time, you don't have any evidence of that. But the first time they come back from getting you the bread or getting themselves to school or, you know, going to the park and organizing a game of basketball and coming home, that's when you finally realize, like, I've done it. I've succeeded. I've raised a kid who's going to survive and thrive even if I'm not there. And it is such a joyous feeling that it breaks that fear. Welcome to Think Bigger, Think Better, where we explore how you can apply insights from visionary leaders and the most provocative philosophers and scientists of our time to make your life and our world a better place. Here's your host, author and speaker, Paul Gibbons. And hey, welcome back to Think Bigger, Think Better. We have an amazing, fascinating interview today with someone who's been called America's worst mom. Well, no, she isn't, but let's explore today in the show why that label has been thrown at her and what she's done about it and the difference she's trying to make in the United States parenting culture. First, I have a crazy week coming up on the show. I'm interviewing the head of IBM's consulting business, a very big business, Jesus Mantas on artificial intelligence its business applications, and some of the ethical issues that we're going to face. I've got an interview with the president of an edtech startup. And then next week, an old friend who's cabinet minister for climate change from New Zealand, the right honorable James Shaw, is going to be on the show talking to us about what a minister for climate change does. So keep coming back. Please subscribe on iTunes or your favorite podcast vehicle. Get notified of new releases of Think Bigger, Think Better, and blogs and books on my website, paulgibbons.net. Join our discussions on the Think Bigger, Think Better podcast page on Facebook. Follow me, Paul G. Gibbons, on Twitter, or lob in a few bucks an episode on Patreon. Now, on to today's show. A few years ago, I took my seven-year-old niece and six-year-old son to Barnes & Noble. And rather than torture them with the philosophy section and watch them running around at my heels, I left them in the enclosed kids' sections where they could browse kids' books, they could play with trains, and so forth. I got home, and all hell broke loose. Somehow, my sister and my son's mother got wind of my trip to the other side of the bookstore, and I was treated to an irate lecture about parental responsibility. How? Could I expose the children to a possible abduction in such a way? And over the last few years, such tensions with other parents have, have continued. For example, over whether a middle schooler could take public transportation to school, as I did when I was a middle schooler. And very recently, over whether my high schooler can just grab an Uber home from a friend's house. 
What's worse today is that the conventional wisdom on parenting, that is our contemporary parenting culture, is on the sides of those people with whom I have this tension. Culture is the norms, beliefs, and assumptions that drive behavior in society, the shared norms, beliefs, and assumptions that drive behavior. And I'm in a minority. That culture today suggests that kids are under constant threat or in constant danger. So me being me, I looked up the data on abductions, ran the statistics, and came up with a probability of about one in two million, or for comparison's sake, roughly the same as being eaten by a shark or struck by lightning. However, in another argument on this matter, I was told, I don't care what the probabilities are, I'm not letting my kids walk alone. This is from a mother in Fort Collins, Colorado, which also has one of the lowest violent crime rates in the United States. So this tension between my views on parenting and today's culture found its way into a chapter in my business bestseller, The Science of Organizational Change, where I discuss the perceptions of risk and how many of our cognitive biases of human beings tell us how poor human beings are evaluating risk, particularly at evaluating relative risks. And then I found today's guest, Lenore Skenazy. She's my new hero. Lenore is the founder of Free Range Kids and president of a nonprofit called Let Grow. She rose to fame, well, infamy maybe, by letting her son ride the New York City subway at the age of eight, then writing a newspaper article about it. And then soon after, she was labeled America's Worst Mom and appeared on every talk show on every channel, finally wrote a book called Free Range Kids. See what you think as I interview Lenore Skenazy now on Think Bigger, Think Better. Lenore, welcome to Think Bigger, Think Better. <laughs> Thank you. I hope to do both. All right. Well, that's cool. So listen, tell me this. What's something weird or unusual or eccentric about you to let guests kind of like see inside the, something that's not on the official resume? You know, I actually think I'm really normal, but everybody else thinks I'm weird. I don't know. I obsessively bake brownies. I try to coin new phrases. I live in New York City. I love squirrels. I carry nuts in my purse. All right, now that's enough, right? Oh, that's pretty. Uh, that's pretty nutty, yeah. so to speak. Yeah. And free range kids was a neologism. Yes, it uh, is. Neologism. Yeah. That's you. Yeah. That's you, right? That's yeah. me. Trademarked. Yeah. 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 And it's quite brilliant. So, how did you become a sensation back? What is it? Two thousand and fifteen. How did you become an? Oh, it's no. It's more than like that. More oh like my 10 god! Years. It was like two thousand and nine or something. Back then, when my children were small, our younger son who was nine at the time had asked me and my husband over and over again if we would take him someplace he'd never been before and let him find his own way home on the subway. And we're living in New York City and we're on the trains all the time. Boy, are they getting bad. But at the time, they were still pretty good. And so we said yes. And I took him one sunny Sunday to Bloomingdale's, the fancy schmancy store in a fancy schmancy zip code. And I left him there and obviously he came home or we'd be having a different conversation. Right, right, right. And I wrote a column about it in the New York Sun, a paper that no longer exists. Gosh, I just, uh, another paper I wrote for just died yesterday. Anyways, and um, two days later after I'd written why I let my nine-year-old ride the subway alone, I was on the Today Show, MSNBC, Fox News, and for contrast, NPR, defending my decision to let him out of my sight underground. Yeah, and some people wanted to put you in jail, right? Some, yeah, I, I, to, to this day, <laughs> I'd say. But um, actually, it's been interesting. I feel like the, the culture has shifted a little in these 10 years. That was about 10 years ago. So yeah, it was a, it was a big controversy, and, and I've been chewing on it ever since. And I always come up with new reasons for why people thought it was so 
wild and so irresponsible or so at least controversial. And, you know, every day I come up with some, some new reason to question my culture. You helped us to see ourselves. You help, you know, culture t- tends to be opaque to the people who are living in it. It's just the way, quote unquote, things are. And you shone a light on part of our culture, which is helicopter parenting and overparenting, or what do you like to call it? What do you call it? I hate the idea that people think I'm against helicopter parents because I'm really very sympathetic to anybody trying to raise kids in a society that has devoted itself to micro scrutinizing the decisions, the daily, everyday million decisions that any parent has to make. And because we're also so devoted to the idea that our kids are in constant danger, that is just a a belief that's sort of rampant in the culture. Even if you want to give your kids any kind of freedom, let them walk home from school, let them um, play on their own, let them use the microwave. Somebody will come up with a reason that that's very dangerous and you're crazy to do it. And sometimes those fears even seep into law to the point where I just ran a piece today on my blog about a mom who let her kids wait in the car for a couple minutes, actually not even a couple minutes, like 30 seconds while she went and got something from, she must have a different post office than me, the post office. And, you know, it's weird that everything turned out fine, but it was weird. She actually had to think about it hard. She had to tell her kids that they were going to wait in the car. The son was worried that, oh my God, what if the police come and get us? And then she had to write a column about it explaining her decision. I mean, it's really weird to me that, a very simple, very safe, very normal decision on the part of a parent, one parenting decision for the day becomes that fraught that it requires discussion and absolution, but it does. Yeah, it's an amazing thing. I mean, I have to say when I stumbled across you, I stumbled across an article first on this subject in uh, the New York Times. It was kind of, why can't she walk to school? Do you recall that article? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yes, an awesome article. And I thought it was like a breath of fresh air because I'd been feeling my whole parenting. I have a 14-year-old and an 8-year-old. I've been feeling for 15 years like I was the crazy one. And I don't know if that's other parents feel the same way. So when I say, oh, he can go out and play in the backyard by himself mm-hmm. or he can you know, ride his bike around the block by himself or my 14-year-old, can he take an Uber by himself, which I think is completely fine. You know, I, I, I get, I don't know if attacked is too strong a word or something like that, but I certainly, I open myself up to a lot of criticism from orthodoxy. And I think more people agree with my, you know, ex-partner. I think orthodoxy is on the range of kids shouldn't take Ubers and they shouldn't go to the park by themselves and they shouldn't ride their bike to school and they certainly shouldn't walk over to a friend's house. So I find myself, when I listen to you and when I read this article, Why Can't You Walk to School in the New York Times?, I thought this is a breath of fresh air. There are people there who make me feel less crazy. So I'm very grateful for that. Yeah, although I'm the lady with the nuts in her purse for the squirrels. (laughs) Here's the thing. In the Soviet Union, they used to throw people into insane asylums if they were questioning communism, right? And, And in a way, they were crazy because how could you question something that has complete power over you? including the power to declare you insane. So it was really strange. It was a way to get rid of dissidents, and they weren't insane. But when you're in a culture that's insane, if you're sane, you look like you're the crazy one. And that's what I feel like has happened with us here in America. It is completely sane to let your children walk to school, play in the park, 
ride a bike around the neighborhood, but it has become, and this is the thing that interests me so much, so quickly it has become taboo to the point where I think your word orthodoxy makes a lot of sense because it's almost immoral to let your child have any freedom or to not have your eyes on them 24-7 that, you know, the culture has decided to treat children as if they are in constant danger. And that has led to so many very strange permutations like the idea, like, like most kids don't walk to school. I think we're down to somewhere between 11 and 13% of kids walk to school now, even though the, the number one way kids die is as passengers in cars. So, you know, kids don't play in the park. I was reading this really cool book by Frank Faridi, F-U-R-E-D-I, called How Fear Works. And he is so ahead of the curve. He wrote a book called Paranoid Parenting back in 2002, you know, before even before helicopter parenting had become a term. He was really just wised up to this. He's in England. And in the book, How Fear Works, he said that there are certain stories that become these stories that we all believe and to the point where it's an expected script every time you hear, you know, the beginning of the story. So he said, for instance, if you're watching the news and the anchorman is sitting there at the desk and there's a picture behind him of a playground and all you see is a playground, what is your assumption that the story is going to be? Right. No, what? I mean, Paul, tell me. Yeah, yeah. An abduction or a kid falls off the thing and he has to go to the emergency room or some sort of tragedy. Right. So that is the only story. You can't even imagine that the playground behind them is like, you know, new playground opens or child finds gold brick in sandbox or, you know. Or child has a good time and makes some new friends or whatever. So there's this one narrative that we allow, and it is that a child was not under the immediate supervision of a parent and something tragic happened. So after I let my son ride the subway by himself and I wrote the column and I was on all these interview shows, there was always a point in the conversation when the host would say reluctantly, ostensibly, but how would you have felt if he hadn't come home? And it was interesting to me because I I could never come up with a good answer. Like, you know, I got a spare son at home or I don't know, I'd be bummed. I'd be, you know, (laughs) disappointed. You know, what a waste of time, seven years of raising him. And now look, I never had an answer and I realized that it wasn't a question. That was the reason I didn't have an answer because it was really, it was the Frank Faridi book made it very clear to me. It wasn't that they were curious about how he would have felt. It was, let's get back to the real storyline. Even though he didn't disappear, how would you have felt if he did? That's the only story we're allowed to tell. And when the story veers from that orthodox tale, you know, he is risen, whatever the tale is, then you have to get back to it immediately because nobody is willing to talk about the idea that, you know, kids are pretty safe. Nothing is ever perfectly safe. You got to deal with a little risk in life. These stories are almost taboo. And if you say, you know, and once in a while, there is going to be a tragedy and really there's nothing we can do short of locking our children in a tower for 18 years. You can't even say that because that is blasphemy. You have to say that we can save every children and if it saves even one, it doesn't matter if we let no kids walk or ride their bikes and we let them all stay at home and get, you know, fat and diabetic and depressed doesn't matter because if it saves one child, blah, blah, blah. That's the orthodox story. That is orthodox. That's 100% orthodoxy. Yep. Yeah. Tell me this. Uh, did you grow up no, in New York? No, I grew York? up in the suburbs of Chicago, Wilmette, Illinois, where they just arrested a lady <laughs> for no, letting her they? eight-year-old walk the dog. They didn't arrest her. They, the cops came uh, after a 911 call and realized that there was nothing wrong. But then Child Protective Services came. And even though 
They oh, met they? the mom and they met the girl and the mom said, look, it's my neighborhood. It's my dog. It's my kid. I believe that she's capable of doing it. I believe the neighborhood is safe enough. It's really safe. It's a boring suburb. They proceeded to investigate the children. They, they questioned the children separately from the mom. They interviewed other family members and then they interviewed the pediatrician. I have to say that's disgraceful as far as I'm concerned. It is. That's an unreal level of, of scrutiny. And, and intervention. And the, the terrible thing is that First of all, that CPS didn't just say, this is a stupid call, goodbye. And then secondly, what are the ramifications? Well, they're duty bound to, they must be duty bound to investigate. So that's probably not a bad thing is that once it's reported to them, they should probably investigate. Okay. So first of all, we should have a way that they don't have to be duty bound to investigate if the complaint coming in is simply that a child was walking the dog. You know, if the child was in tatters or, you know, had bruises all over her body or was injecting heroin while taking the dog for a walk. Okay. But if it's simply a a child walking a dog, that should be a case where CPS does not have to do anything further. And as they did come to the house and they talked to the mom and they talked to the kid, if there's no evidence there of abuse, you shouldn't go hunting for it as if it's, you know, like, yay, now we got a live one and we can do whatever we want. We can interview them as much as we want. We can look in their cabinets. There has to be some provision that keeps CPS from being allowed to invade any home just because somebody picked up the phone and dialed 911 and said, there's a kid outside and I don't like seeing that. You know, my listeners uh, from overseas and from maybe elsewhere in America should know that Will met Illinois, the suburb of Chicago, is a pretty shishi suburb. <laughs> you know? It's a lovely suburb. My parents yeah. moved there probably for the same reason that everybody moves there today, which is that the schools are great. And when I say CPS, I mean Child Protective Services, yes, which yes. in America has a terrible provision, which is that anybody who wants to can call up Child Protective Services and lodge a complaint and not even leave their name. Right. So it's a great way to weaponize the entire government <laughs> against anybody you dislike, like your ex-wife, for instance. Oh, yeah. And because CPS is still at this moment duty-bound to A, take anonymous calls, which it shouldn't, and B, investigate simply because somebody called, even though what they called about doesn't seem terrible, like a kid outside, then it's a really easy way to have a lot of power on your side against somebody you dislike, and you can do it over and over and over again, and they have to visit 10 times if you make 10 calls. So somebody says, do you think this has changed? I mean, I think it's changed because when I, I grew up in New York City, I grew up in Manhattan for seven years. When I was eight years old, my mom used to say, go get some milk and bread from the grocery store, which was a couple blocks away when I was eight. And by Mm -hmm. the time I was nine, and by the time I was 10, I think we had a 10 block radius. I couldn't go to Harlem. Harlem was off the grid. But mm-hmm. I could go 10 blocks as far as Central Park. I could go on the East River. And wow, that's a long swath from the East River to Central yeah, Park. Yeah, it's, it's like, uh, what, seven big blocks? So it's what's like a mile, a mile and a half. What is it? Something mm-hmm. like that. Mm-hmm. But anyway, yeah. So, um, that, you know, and by the time I was in junior high school, we could run around. You know, I walked to junior high school, which was. So anyway, I always found that that was kind of normal. And I rode public transportation. And I don't, didn't think feel like I was the only kid doing this. I felt like that we were all. No, doing, you weren't. And- yeah. And I would say that today, most middle school kids, I think, get themselves where they're going. I've worked with one middle school. We have a, so now I'm president of Let Grow. Yeah, let's hear about, let's hear about that because that's, you're trying to make a difference in this area. So let's hear a little bit about Let Grow. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So here's the deal. So after I was on all those television shows, after letting my son ride the subway at age nine, uh, that weekend I started a blog called Free Range Kids, the neologium we talked about before. Not a word you hear a lot. I mean, I think you hear free-range kids more often than you hear neologians. <laughs> <Whatever. laughs> 
So anyways, and, and my point was that I loved safety. I, I absolutely think I'm a nervous mom. I just don't think the kids need a security detail every time they leave the house. And the, after I started the blog, then I wrote a book called Free Range Kids. And then it sort of grew into a movement. I mean, if you Google it now, it, you know, people say I'm a free range parent or whatever. And for 10 years, I made my living by giving speeches all around the country and actually sometimes the world about how we got so afraid for our kids. How come we all remember a childhood where we stayed out till the streetlights came on and we are grateful for the freedom that we had and the fun we had and making up our own games and meeting our friends and knocking on the door. Can Betsy come out and play? And yet we don't give that same freedom to our own kids. And you know why people would say? Because the world is different now. The world is different. Well, the world is different. Yeah. Let, let's talk let's about how talk the world is different. That. Let's talk about how the world is okay. different. The world is really different. The crime rate is at a 50-year low at the moment. Oh, it's at a low, not a high. Not a a high and not a lie. Uh, The crime rate is back to what it was when there was no no color television. (laughs) Yeah. That's a long time ago. Uh, And and New York City is so dangerous today, except that it's much safer. (laughs) Right. I don't have the exact pinpoint numbers in front of me, but in 1993... There were about 2,200 and something murders a year in New York City, and now it's about 200 and something murders a year in New York City. So that's 10 times safer than it was in 1993. So people say times have changed, and I say, yeah, aren't we lucky? So if, if you were outside and being raised as a kid in the 60s, 70s, 80s, God forbid the 90s, or even the beginning of this century, it was less safe for you to go out and play than it is for kids today. And then sometimes people say, oh, but Lenore, it's safe because we don't let our children outside. And I'm like, well, the crime rate against, you know, arson, murder, rape, burglary, and assault. All that's the same. They're all down. (laughs) And those are not, those are against adults and we're not helicoptering the adults. So it's sort of, once again, we're talking about a story that people believe versus reality. And the story is that, Times have changed. Nothing is safe. It's not like the old days. And in fact, it's hard to recognize that we should be grateful rather than terrified that we get to raise our kids in an era like this, as opposed to, you know, the 60s, 70s, 80s, 90s, or aughts. So here's what I want to ask you. I'm sitting talking to a soccer mom. She is a, she runs her own business. She's a management consultant. She's an HR consultant. She's the parent of two five-year-old kids, six-year-old kids. Mm -hmm. They're on the soccer team. I'm the coach. Uh, We're chatting as parents here on the sideline. Mm -hmm. And we end up talking about whether kids should be alone or whether they can walk to school or something in that, in this area. Mm -hmm. And she said, would never let that happen in a million years. Far too dangerous. What if they got abducted? And I said, well, they've got more chance of getting eaten by a shark than they do of being abducted. (laughs) And we're in Colorado. There's not too many sharks. (laughs) And she said, I don't care what the statistics say. I am never letting my children do that. So what do I say to someone that thinks like that? What do I say? Here's the deal. Let's go back for a second. Because so free range kids, I go around the country and the world talking about how we got so afraid for our kids. Many people nod along. Oh, that's true. We really, you know, I didn't realize it, but we are in such safe times that we really are crazy. You know, Right. thank you for the insights. And I'm going to do exactly what I always done. So. So I start Let Grow about a year ago with a new mission because I've changed a lot of minds to the point where, you know, free range kids is a phrase. Utah passed the free range parenting law. You can't arrest parents for letting their kids play outside or walk to school, wait briefly in a car or come home with a latchkey. Okay. 
but mostly I just changed minds. Now I want to change behavior. And what I've realized painfully (laughs) over a decade is that listening to me and my amazing statistics and all the advice about kids need to have an internal locus of control and they only get that by problem solving on their own. And if you're always there to help them, that doesn't help them because blah, 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 doesn't help. Anything I'm saying, you know, whether you agree with it or vehemently disagree with it, it's not going to change how you raise your kids. The only thing that changes behavior is, and this is the drag, changing behavior. Yes, yes. So so the point is once you see that your kid can walk to school and they come home and they're excited and they're happy and they're flushed and they brought you a clutch of dandelions because they were so grateful that you finally let them and here it is, it's for you, mommy, it's a bouquet, your heart bursts with joy because your kid is happy and because they're safe and mostly because you as a parent have succeeded because why are we, why do you have kids? The the reason we have kids, but for evolution reasons is that so that we, they carry on our genes. And what you need to know is that your child is going to survive when you're dead. That is the most basic part of parenting. When you get down to the very, to the grit level. And when you are with your kid doing everything with them all the time, you don't have any evidence of that. But the first time they come back from getting you the bread or getting themselves to school or, you know, going to the park and organizing a game of basketball and coming home, that's when you finally realize, like, I've done it. I've succeeded. I've raised a kid who's going to survive and thrive even if I'm not there. And it is such a joyous feeling that it breaks that fear. It would break the fear of that woman you're talking about, the soccer mom. If she sent her kids together to go get the pizza and bring it home and they were all eating it together, she could never be afraid again because the joy has replaced the fear. And I've seen this happen over and over and over again. So what Let Grow is doing is trying to sort of push people into doing this and to push them in a group. And that means having the Let Grow project where teachers tell their students, an entire school of teachers tells the entire student body that between now and next week sometime, you have to go home and ask your parent if you can do one thing on your own. And we give them a list. It's all on our site. It's all free. Walk the dog, ride your bike someplace, make dinner, pick up your brother from soccer, whatever it is. And the kids do it. And it changes the parents. And then because all the parents are being changed at the same time, it changes the community. And I'll tell you, I was talking to a principal whose school had just started doing the Let Grow project two weeks earlier. And she said that when she was driving home on Friday afternoon after the the project had begun, she's on Long Island in a suburb that sounds like the suburb I grew up in. And as she was driving, she passed two kids on their bikes, one kid on a skateboard, and one kid who was roller skating, which I didn't know anybody had roller skated in the last 50 years. And she stopped to talk to them all because she was so excited. And she said in her 17 years as a principal in that same school, she had never seen any children outside until the project. So the project, (laughs) that's my whole goal now is to change behavior because once you've sort of pushed people into changing their behavior just once, then you open the floodgates and you can totally renormalize letting your kids have some freedom. But Listening to me doesn't do it. It's seeing your kid and feeling your heart leap up that does it. 
Uh, that's very cool. And it's interesting. So I, I do a lot of writing about this subject, Lenore, uh, on behavior, behavioral change. Yeah, tons and tons. But no, no, no. I think it's important for listeners to hear as there are many things in life. You can't think your way into a new way of behaving. You need to behave your way into a new way yeah. of behaving. Oh, I or see. behave your way into a new way of thinking. Yeah, yeah, that's my thing. Yeah, yeah, behavioral change and all that stuff. I have a book on it. But the interesting thing is that you have to act your way into a new way of thinking. And all of the statistics and all of the rational arguments. Right. Rational brain yeah, doesn't, do doesn't do it. it doesn't it can't do it. It won't change behavior at all. And, you know, I really feel for this one. I just didn't know what to say to her. I was, I was a loss for words. What, in your view, are the consequences of overprotective parenting or I want to use the right word because you don't object to helicopter parenting. Right, and right, you call right. yourself, even, you're a helmet mom. About- you call yourself helmet mom or whatever. So you are a protective parent. You are a nurturing parent. Right. So let's not talk about it as protective or overprotective. Let's talk about yeah. it as a culture that only sees children through the lens of risk. You know, what could go wrong? Right. You know, you're not breastfeeding. Oh my God, they're going to yeah. end up with brain damage. And oh, they're walking to school. They're going to get abducted. And oh, they're drinking from a plastic cup. They're going to get cancer. And oh, they're, you know, just, it's, <laughs> it's, it's, it's almost laughable, except that every day I got, I got a press release the other day from a company that is making pants that are very subtle for children. They, they look like normal pants from the outside, but inside there is literally bubble wrap. And the reason that the lady had invented this, and she was so proud to the point where I haven't made fun of it on my site because I felt bad for her because she's a woman entrepreneur, but she said her child started, you know, toddling and she saw him fall down. And then she read a statistic that said, my God, children who are learning to walk fall an average of 17 times a day. And she said, can you imagine how discouraged you would get, how frustrated you would get if you fell 17 times a day? And I'm like, I'd be dead if I fell 17 times a day, you know? I mean, I'm an adult right. and if I'm falling 17 times a day, either there's I have a brain aneurysm or there's something yeah. terribly wrong. But if you're a child, you're supposed to fall 17 times. So you have, because it's not easy to start walking, but rather than frustrated, or maybe you are frustrated, maybe you're so frustrated by falling that you will yourself to walk a little better and to try it again and to get good at it. And so she had really flipped reality on its head from it's bad to fall when you're learning how to walk. I mean, that's what she thought. And and reality is, of course, you're going to fall when you're learning how to walk. And so when you're living in a culture that is telling you these crazy things all the time, that it's dangerous to walk to school, but safe to drive to school, and it's dangerous this, dangerous that, it's a society, it's a culture that has wedded itself to the idea that no kids are safe doing anything ever on their own. And the consequence of that, what we're seeing is off the charts rise in anxiety. And it doesn't surprise me at all because if you were micromanaged every single second and somebody was watching you saying, no, no, not that way. Uh-uh, no, no, Paul, wait, wait, move the microphone. No, wait, would you say that again? And no, I'd, I'd like ask a different question and change your voice and that's not good. You would be driven crazy too. And the other thing about childhood is that childhood is when you gain mastery. It's when you learn your way around. It's when you figure out how to deal with the bully. It's when you organize a game and everybody is playing duck, duck, whale because you came up with the idea. And if all these things, if all the time that you would be spending creating and and risking and, and being brave are all taken out of your lives because there's an adult there saying, I'll hold you, I'll watch you, I'll give you another turn, put that down, let's share there's nothing inside of you that builds any resilience. And so I would be very 
very fragile too if I hadn't had a normal childhood where I had to deal with some anger, fear, frustration, and guilt, I guess. And instead, all this is taken out of the kids' lives because it's too much for them to handle. And weirdly enough, that makes life too much for them to handle. Sure. Isn't that weird? We, we By trying to produce certain results, we uh, actually produce the opposite of the result we're trying to produce. So you sort of think by, by wanting to produce safe kids and kids who are well-adjusted and well-balanced or anything, we're actually making them potentially more anxious and with a reduced sense of autonomy and self-mastery and self-efficacy. And so, yeah. You name it, self-everything. So here, I'll tell you my favorite story. From- All right. I, w- I want to hear I want to hear your favorite story. What's, I want to hear two stories. I want to hear what's the <laughs> most absurd thing you've ever heard, like your Wilmette example and the kid walking the dog. And what's the most inspiring thing that you've ever heard of, like in sort of a free range? Yeah. All right. I'll tell you one. Here's the absurd one and and sort of depressing, which is that I was interviewing kids the other day about their independence. And I asked all of them, and they were ages uh, first grade through fifth grade, so five-year-olds through 10-year-olds, you know, what have you done that was cool that, you know, you really felt like on top of the world because you did it yourself? And one boy, and I can't remember if he was nine or 10 told me that he got himself to karate. And I was like, oh, okay, that's cool. So, you know, that's unusual almost in this day and age. I said, did you walk or ride your bike or a scooter? And he's like, he looked at me weirdly and he said, no, I mean, I I closed the car door and then (laughs) I walked into karate while my mom parked the car. She stayed in the car. Oh my gosh. Yeah. She parked the car. So he was separated from her for a good two minutes while she dropped him off in front of the karate place. And then she went to the parking lot. So he was yeah. alone from the car door to the door of the dojo. Makes me, makes me want to cry. To me, me this was, cry. I mean, I, look, I've been listening to these stories for 10 years. That one really threw me for a loop because he thought that that was independence. That was a he, big breakthrough. Yeah. He had done something by himself and really he'd walked 20 feet. And his mother would be there soon. I mean, she was just parking the car. She wasn't dropping him off. And then I'll come back when I'm done grocery shopping. She was still planning to watch the whole karate lesson and then pick him up and take him home. So very, very sad. It's weirder than sad because it's, it's like a dystopian novel. I mean, I hated The Handmaid's Tale so much that I only watched the really short movie version from the 90s. But talk, the, the whole idea there is that nobody has any freedom because they're under constant surveillance and everybody can turn them in. And and what we're doing is we're raising children under constant surveillance. They are, you know, they're with a teacher, a coach, a parent, the dojo instructor, but independent time to think, to get lost, to come up with a new idea. Those are missing from their lives. And, you know, if you grow up in a prison, you don't know that you're growing up in a prison because you've never been beyond there. And yeah. he didn't know that like walking from the door of the car to the door of the karate lesson is not a big deal. Yeah. So, so inspire was, us. So, so here's the nice big, thing. So here's a mom who is also very one. afraid. And she yeah. wrote to me, she'd heard me actually on a radio thing. So podcasts have a fantastic place in our culture. And she heard me talking about, unlike most people, <laughs> she heard me talking about the statistics and crime is down and anxiety is up and we got to give our kids more freedom. And somehow she took it to heart. And this is how nervous she is. So she was running a 5K race with her daughter, who I, I can't remember the age, was like about 12. And, you know, every, I don't know, K or something, you have to check in. And her daughter said, and 700 kids in this race and parents, I guess. The daughter said, can I please go ahead, mom? 
you know? And the yeah. mom said, no, I have to be with you. And she's like, please, mom, please. And it wasn't on a court. It wasn't just around a track. It was like through some woods or something. And the mother was terrified, but somehow yeah. she got herself to the point where she said, okay. And her daughter took off like the wind. And the mother was still so nervous that every time she came to one of the checkpoints, she'd say, did you see a girl come by here? She has brown hair and she was wearing a spangly bracelet or whatever. And the people would say, yes, we saw her. She went by, she went by, she went by, she went by. And when they got to the end, not only had the girl gone by, she won third place out of 700 people. And that's what happens when you let your kids go. And this was a mom letting her kid go only on a prescribed course with 700 other people. And still, it was very hard for her. And that's why I don't blame parents for being helicopters. This has been, it was another era. She wouldn't have felt fearful like that. We've created fearful parents. But being able to let her go, you know, she got the brass ring. I mean, she got actually the brass medal. She was third place. So that to me just shows that even the most scared, the most oppressed of us parents, when we let go, we will, you know, joy cometh in the morning. It's, it's a different feeling. It's, it's a different relationship. It's freedom. I think that is an inspiring story. Let me ask you something. Uh, you have a thing on let grow, which is called really question mark, which is kind of, I think you call it a snopes.com. So it's kind of a fact checker.com for parents who want to investigate perhaps what are some of the statistics and what are some of the relative risks. What, in your view, is the risk that parents most overestimate, that they most get wrong? Okay. So the really, it's like a tab at Let Grow and you go to letgrow.org and you click on really. And then there's all these things, you know, will a sippy cup ruin my child's, uh, you know, give them cancer? Will this happen? Will that happen? And the, the thing that is most prevalent now, actually, this, there's been a slight change in people's fears in the 10 years. It used to be predator fears that a child would be kidnapped, raped, and eaten. And now it's that a child will be kidnapped and sold into sex slavery, sure. which is interesting because that was a, also the fear 100 years ago when we yep, used yep, to yep. talk about white slavery. And the way this one is spread is particularly insidious because it's always through a Facebook post. And I collect these Facebook posts, and I have, I'd say, maybe 50 of them at this point. And they all sound exactly like this. Dear friends. I never thought it would happen to me, but oh my God, last night I was at, and then it's either Ikea or Target or the grocery or the local mall, and I was with my darling children, and I noticed some man looking at me from the end of the aisle. He was staring at my children. We were, you know, we were in the cereal aisle. Then we went two aisles over to the canned good aisles, and believe it or not, there he was again. Again. And he seemed to be using his phone. And when I looked outside, there was a van. And there was a man in the van. I have no doubt that he was preparing to snatch my children and throw them in the van and take them to country X where they would be sold into sex trafficking if only I had looked down at my phone. Thank God I was paying enough attention. And by simply glaring at him, his whole plan (laughs) fell to pieces and my children are home safely with me. But parents, mamas, hug your babies a little tighter because you never know. And please- God, I want to refer her to some psychotherapy. (laughs) But you know what's interesting? It's it's hysteria. Yeah. Yeah. It's common. I don't know if they realize they're repeating word for word almost the exact same story as someplace else. And the thing that makes me most outraged is not just that these get shared hundreds and sometimes thousands and sometimes hundreds of thousands of times, but 
sometimes the media, the craven media that I was part of for so long, I'm a newspaper reporter by trade, picks up the story from the Facebook post and said, mom's close call in Ikea or, oh. you know, mother terrified at local mall. And one paper, the most egregious one, I think it was the Reno Gazette, actually gave a map of where the crime had not happened, <laughs> right? <laughs> so the mother and her children were leaving a concert. They were walking down the sidewalk. They got to a, a the indoor parking garage. She saw some people getting into the garage. Then she saw some people waiting in a van, and she was sure that the people who were going into the garage were trying to distract her so the people who were waiting in the van could then take the children in sex traffic, blah, blah, blah. And the map showed here was the concert here, was the sidewalk here, was the the garage. And it's like, you can't call that news when nothing happened. So how many kids uh, in the United States were abducted into sex trafficking rings in 2017? Ask from 2017 down to uh, as long as you want. Uh, I talked to the head of the Crimes Against Children Research Center. All they do is research crimes against children. As you might guess, it's based at the University of New Hampshire. And he said he had heard of zero Zero, oh, zero. zero, zero, zero cases of any child taken from a parent at a store or at a public place and sold into sex slavery or forced into sex slavery. So it is completely an urban myth. And yet parents think it's happening all the time. And stranger abductions, which is a slightly more frequent, that's it's, I it's think very it's around 50, 50. Yeah. It's about 50 a year, right? It's about 50. It's a year, actually the, the most recent year we have is 105 from 2011. Yeah. 30% yep. of them weren't even recognized as being missing because the real tragedy is kids who are completely neglected to the point where nobody notices if they're around or not. And yep. it's the rarest of crimes. I mean, most the vast majority of crimes against children are not committed by strangers. They're not committed by people on the sex offender registry. They're committed by people that they know and, and often love who are, are in very close contact with them. And when I ran the numbers and I did run the statistics or something like that, it's something like one in one and a half million or something Right. Like if you that. wanted your child to be – my favorite statistic from my book is that – and these were numbers crunched by a guy in England named Warwick Cairns who wrote a book called How to Live Dangerously. Anyways, if you wanted your child to be kidnapped by a stranger and uh, you know taken away like, like in Law and Order, how long would you have to keep them outside unattended for it to be statistically likely – Oh, that's a good that question. That they would be taken. How, and it's sort of like asking how many lottery tickets do you have to buy to be statistically likely to win the lottery, but how, how long? Hundreds of years, I would guess, but I, yeah. I, I, I that's, don't know. That's more than most people guess. Most people think like it's you know a couple hours to a couple days, but it's actually 750,000 years. <laughs> that's even more. So even, yeah, that's crazy. Oh boy. That's really nicely put. Actually. I really like the way you've expressed that. I'll put a link to the book in the, uh, in the, in the show notes, as well as a link to your book, as, as well as a link to let grow. Oh, great. As well as a link to the Vimeo media of you on John Stewart, which I thought was hilarious. So we're going to do yeah, all that of that. Fun. The leading causes. So what causes of childhood accidents are we underestimating. So where are parents making mistake by not being- I, I don't think anyone's, uh, nobody's underestimating any kind of death to children. The number one way kids die is as car passengers. Yeah. So, you know, have them use seatbelts. Yeah. But it's still, you know, I, I don't think we're underestimating it to the point where nobody should ever put a kid in a car because, oh my God, it's so dangerous. But let's just keep it in perspective. It's certainly more dangerous than letting them walk to school, yeah. letting them climb a tree, 
And also fence in your swimming pools. pool if you have a pool. Yeah. I mean, I have the top three is drowning, car accidents, and guns. Those are the three leading causes of accidental deaths. Of- oh, yeah. I didn't know about the third. I wasn't. I didn't know that guns were necessarily number three. Yeah, it's number three, depending on the age group, but it's number three for uh, elementary school children, and it's number four for high school-age children as a leading cause of death. So, I mean, those are things where we might be underestimating the risk of something like that. Again, I don't think we're ever underestimating any any dangers to kids, but if you want to put it in perspective, just remember that those are the the dangers rather than walking to school, sure, playing at the park, something like that. Sure, sure, sure. A bike. sure, sure, sure. So that's great. Tell us a little bit more about where we can find you. What you're up to now would be really oh, cool. Yeah. What's your what's your latest shtick? So Let Grow was founded by four people. It's me. Daniel Shuckman, who is the chairman of a group called FIRE, which fights for free speech on campus. Jonathan Haidt, who just wrote a a bestseller called The Coddling of the American Mind. And Peter Gray, who's a professor at Boston College, professor of psychology. Sorry, there's, I'm in New York City. There's a, a, a siren behind me. So Peter Gray has written extensively about how important free play is for kids. And so together, we have um, a couple of initiatives that we're trying to get schools to do there. All our materials are free. Talking to us on the phone is free. And if you go to letgrow.org and you click on schools, you'll see both of these initiatives. One is the Let Grow Project that we talked about a little earlier, where teachers tell the kids to go home and do something on their own. And the result is ecstatic children, ecstatic parents, and even teachers who are happy because they feel that the kids have grown a little in maturity. And the other is the Let Grow Play Club, which was Peter Gray's idea, which is to keep schools open before or after school for free play. So there's an adult on premises in case there's something horribly wrong. But otherwise, the kids just do what we used to do as, as a normal out. course of our day, which is, yeah, you, you play. You come up with a game to play, the rules, you make the teams, or you go off and do something on your own, or two of you play jump rope, whatever it is. And Because there is so little opportunity for free play in kids' regular lives, this is a way to give it back because the parents trust that the kids are someplace safe, which is school. There's a critical mass of kids to play with because if I'm the only kid who's allowed outside after school and I go to the park, it's boring because everybody is either back inside or they're in Little League and I'm not part of it. So you got a critical mass of kids. you got a safe place to be. You have some place to keep the kids after school if the parents are working. And you have kids off their electronic devices. So they'll come up with something to do. And in doing so, they get a lot of the social skills that we worry that are missing, and including, you know, creativity and compromise and um, being able to hold yourself together till it's your turn and getting buy-in from the group, uh, leadership. So the only way to really give kids back free play that we've figured out that's easy is to have it at school as an option. Super idea. Really good idea. And I just want to say for listeners, by the way, John Haight and Peter Gray are, I mean, Lenore isn't just making this stuff up as she goes along. John Haight is one of today's leading public intellectuals. He's got a book called The Happiness Hypothesis. He's got a book called The Righteous Mind. And now he's got a book called The, what is it? The the, The Coddling of the American Mind. The Coddling of the American Mind. So uh, he's really a fantastic commentator on contemporary culture and, and a serious intellectual. So with some strong backing, and as you can hear listening to Lenore, she's got numbers to back up her claims, which is something that we're very into on this show, which is evidence-based 
I'd say, yeah, at this point. I'm a reporter, remember, or I was, and yeah. uh, evidence is key. Well, you're, you've got a bigger audience now. I mean, most reporters would kill for your audience right now. Let me ask you this, though. What's the big vision? So if this all goes as well as it could possibly go for the mm-hmm. next 10 years with Let Grow, mm-hmm. what do you see happening? Oh, I see a bunch of things. Um, first of all, the Utah law, that the free-range parenting law in Utah – that just relieves parents of the worry that some busybody is going to see them letting their kid walk to school and call 911 and upend their lives. That law is great, and I'm hoping that it gets passed in all 50 states. Right now, there does seem to be interest in it in several states, so that looks good. I'm hoping, I mean, when we, when we try to boil down our mission, it's to make it easy, normal, and legal to give our kids back some independence. And I think that the, you know, there's a lot of forces against us and that there's a lot of organized everything that would like to keep kids caged (laughs) as they already are. But I think that as people recognize that you want kids who are resilient and anti-fragile and ready for the world, how do you get that? You have to give them some freedom. And so I think the, the early adapters are going to start saying, let me let my kid out, give my kid some responsibility. And one piece of evidence that I think is very cool in our favor is that here in New York City, a group has just started offering free play after school at this adventure playground where there's like a lot of stuff to, to, to hammer and to climb on. Um, and it costs $1,000. And for $1,000, you can have your kids twice a week go and play without adult interference. And to me, <laughs> it's great. It's so great because if it's worth $1,000 – you know, guess what? You can get the same thing for free. And people want to copy the most successful people. And it's going to be the successful financiers in downtown Manhattan where this is offered who are going to take advantage of this $1,000 class. And so once it becomes the cool thing to do and the wise thing to do to give your kids more freedom, you know, weird cultural moments pass In in the Victorian era. People covered their piano legs because they were thought to be too sexy, right? I mean, it's a weird era. And then everybody looks back on it now and goes, huh, (laughs) what? And I think that we're going to look back on our era when we drove our kids everywhere, when we watched over every play date, when we cut off all the crusts until they went off to college as a strange cultural moment yes, we were as, an aberration, as an aberration in our right what were we, right, th- right. What were we and, thinking back then yeah right so so my vision for the future is that we're looking back on now and going what were we thinking yeah right on good well i think you know it sounds to me first of all like you're beginning to tilt the culture in a direction that's uh that's healthier so i want to wish you the best of luck with all of that it sounds to me like let grow is just the right kind of organization You've got some some great minds behind it and some great passion and energy, which I hear from you, that's for sure. Mm-hmm. So it's fantastic. This is quite a life's mission that you stumbled into 10 years ago, it's, right? Yeah, really. Who knew? <laughs> right? I mean, really. Right? Exactly, right? You wake up one morning and you're all of a sudden, you're a household name, the worst mom in America and uh, right. <laughs> whatever. And now this is your vocation. This is your mission in life. So that's pretty cool. I think that's a really cool story. Well, thank you. And thanks for being here. Oh, it was great, Paul. This was a fun interview. I appreciate right. it. I use this end of the podcast to make some notes on contemporary culture and catch you up a little bit about some of the things I do. I just got back from Martha's Vineyard, a wedding. A friend of mine who at 60 had not yet been married. But what's more, his father is a 92-year-old professor of divinity at Harvard, and he got to marry his son. Now, I think that's hella cool. If you're a minister, 
marrying your own son who's waited till you were 92. It's one heck of a special day. And I was thrilled to be part of it. And I also caught up with all of our friends from college in the 1970s, early 80s. There were a bunch of us. And the vineyard is cool. It's beautiful. It's insanely expensive. But it's a place where grown-ups go to party. And I thought that was kind of fun. I've often talked to my younger friends who go to places like Coachella or ADC or hang out in towns like Vegas where the average age in a club is 21.2. But in Martha's Vineyard, there's a sophistication. Uh, and our gang went out dancing every night. And what's more, I never felt prohibitively old, which I certainly do if I go to those other places. Uh, speaking of that, that week I turned 58, which sounds ancient to me. I still think inside of me there's a little dude who thinks he's 32. He's obviously deluded, but it's a weird thing. I've just finished Ozark Season 2, which was amazing. And they just announced Ozark Season 3, which is more amazing still. And I think that will probably win my prize for the best television show of 2018. We'll have to see. But what's interesting about the show, and this relates to feminism, and it relates to me too, is how Ozark started as Marty Bird, the protagonist played by Jason Bateman, being the uber genius, uber nerd, sort of a breaking bad sort of guy, slightly Asperger's, directing the traffic and evading the the mob and the cartels by dint of his sheer intellect and problem-solving skills. But now his wife and several other alpha females have got him hopping. And I think that's fascinating the way these characters who started off as kind of just in the orbit of this super smart guy who are now actually calling the shots and running the show. And if you haven't seen the show, and I'm talking about certainly Ruth, certainly his wife, certainly Darlene, certainly the lawyer from Chicago, who's the cartel lawyer. So certainly he's no longer the hub at the center of the uh, wheel and the women, they're just the spokes who revolve around his orbit. And uh, that's what's interesting, particularly living in the time we do where conversations about feminism are becoming more prominent, more important. And I want to say about time too. And on that same note, there was a show called Doctor Who. I started watching in England when I was three years old, which is 1964, 55 years ago. And then we moved to the United States, so I ditched Doctor Who then. And then 10 years ago, I really got into the reincarnation, the remake of it. And my sons and I watched every single episode. So I won't sell you on the show now, but it's science fiction in a very, very British, very quirky way. Now, what's cool about that is they now made Doctor Who a woman. And Doctor Who is a Time Lord who, when they kick the bucket, gets a new body when that one craps out, and the new body that this Doctor Who, for the first time in the 55 years of the show, is a woman, and she, Jodie Whittaker, is incredible, outstanding. So if, like, you don't like quirky BBC sci-fi, I'm not going to probably try and convert you to Doctor Who, don't bother. But if, like me, you got a little bored of some of the later versions of the show, I got a little bored of Peter Capaldi, Come on back, because Doctor Who is back, and I think she may well be as entertaining as any of the previous Doctor Whos. I've only seen one episode, so, you know, the jury will still be out on that. Anyway, so thanks a lot for listening. I'm looking forward to a busy couple of uh, run-ups to the end of the year. Lots of very cool podcasts. Don't forget to hit that subscribe button or that like button, and I will talk to you all next week. To celebrate the launch of the show, and thank you all for listening, I'm going to be giving away books. Lots and lots of books. All you have to do is leave a review in iTunes. We're going to raffle off a book every single week for 12 weeks. So head on over to paulgivens.net slash iTunes 
to get easy-to-follow directions and let me know the title of your review to make sure that you're entered to win. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this episode of Think Bigger, Think Better. Great ideas are great, but this isn't gospel. Share your critical thinking in the comments. Where do I disagree? What insights were most powerful? If you got value, don't forget to share the value by sharing the podcast. Finally, to get information on book and blog releases and new video content, head over to paulgibbons.net and join the community of thinkers talking about using science and philosophy to make our world a better place.